Welcome everyone to the Learn Fresh podcast. My name is Nick Monzi, CEO and co-founder of Learn Fresh, and I'm joined by Calvin Seibert, our chief academic officer, my co-host, and affectionately and appropriately nicknamed the game changer of education. Changing the game. Today we're going to talk about the link between sports and education through conversations with two notable figures in the Learn Fresh community. We'll be joined live by Kirk Walters, Director of Math Research at West Ed and a close friend of the Learn Fresh organization over the last decade. Throughout our conversation with Kirk, we'll be sharing commentary from Harrison Barnes, a current NBA player with the Sacramento Kings and a leader within the NBA's philanthropic community. Barnes is a native of Ames, Iowa, where he attended Ames High School and graduated near the top of his class with nine AP course credits to his name. He also happened to be the number one national high school recruit of the 2010 class. Barnes attended the University of North Carolina and went on to be drafted by the Golden State Warriors in the first round of the 2012 NBA Draft with the seventh overall pick. He won an NBA championship with the Warriors in 2015 and currently plays for the Sacramento Kings. He currently serves on the board of the NBA Foundation. To tip off this conversation, Kirk shares a bit of his personal story, including his background in teaching, coaching, and education research. Today on the Learn Fresh Podcast. I went to a small university in uh, Arkansas where my dad was a professor. I played basketball at this small college, loved sports, and we had a guest speaker come and he rolled out this really amazing story about... um, a teacher that had applied to this um, prestigious school uh, and had beat out like 200 other applicants, and which was an amazing accomplishment. But the speaker's punchline was, do you think there could have been a few other teachers that could have done that job? What about all these other schools where they can't get anybody to come in and teach uh, various subjects, let alone math? And it was at that moment where I was like, you know what? I've lived in Arkansas my whole life. Um, I think the world's a bigger place and um, sort of started on that journey of education and perhaps outside uh, my, my sort of comfort zone of Northwest Arkansas. When I graduated, um, got married very young. I'm ha- happy to report, still, still married uh, 28 years later um, to, the, to the same terrific person uh, who was from California and ended up getting a teaching job in San Bernardino City. Uh, I was certified to teach math and social studies, actually, and not surprisingly, uh, the middle school math jobs were were there and uh, started teaching, coaching basketball. Uh, I, I soon learned that the, the fact that I had played basketball and probably and, and worked at a summer camp probably helped make my first year of teaching, uh, even though I had like six sections of uh, 35 kids in each class. It actually it was it was challenging, but I, it was it was it was fun too at the same time. And I kind of knew that it was a good fit. But I think if I hadn't had a background in sports and uh, you know working at summer basketball camps and things like that, um, that I think it would have been much more difficult. Holiday switches on. Boom! Here's Barnes. Five on the shot clock. They got to get busy. Barnes does. Good decision. Harrison Barnes knocks it in from downtown. One of the biggest things that drew me to education was the fact that my mom was a secretary in the Department of Music at Iowa State University. That allowed me to be around one a college campus, but two, a lot of people 
that were educators. And just by being around them, always wanted to learn more, talking to them, experts in so many different fields, it made me want to become a better student. Barnes inside, there's only one Barnes on the court. His first name is Harrison. North Carolina. I taught and coached for about nine years in San Bernardino, first middle school and then high school. And um, when, I, when I was teaching math at San Bernardino High School, that was actually the same, right around the same time that um, one of my former middle school players, which Nick, I've told Nick about this, Tyson Chandler was on my eighth grade team. He was 6'10", um, very coordinated. Uh, he was also at the time, uh, you know, highly recruited. He ended up playing for Compton Dominguez, which basketball aficionados probably know. And, uh, and yet he was, if he had stayed in San Bernardino, he would have gone to San Bernardino High School, which for other trivia purposes, uh, Michael Jordan's um, shot over Byron Russell against the Utah Jazz. Byron Russell went to San Bernardino High School. They had a really strong tradition uh, of, of basketball uh, pre, pre-Tyson, although the, they had been a little down in the, this is in, this is in two, 1999, 2000. Um, that said, I'm coaching JV at San Bernardino High School, thinking about, yeah, do I want to get into high school coaching? And at the same time, um, I had a researcher come and video my math class as part of a research project. And I was sort of fascinated by how complex uh, uh, preparing for and delivering a math lesson that's really designed to increase the engagement of students and to look at multiple perspectives and approaches. And um, it was this intensive maybe three, four months where we produced a video, analyzed it, where I was like, whoa, this is, there's a whole other world related to math education research. Um, do I want to pursue like a teaching coaching career and continue to do that? Or do I want to pursue grad school? And it was actually that at that point where I decided to go back to grad school. Uh, and believe it or not, it was the company that I work for now, WestEd. Um, it, was, it was a colleague at WestEd uh, back in the late 90s that, that did that project in my classroom. And now I'm working at WestEd. So, Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a fire hose. <laughs> so can you share your thoughts on the connection between athletics and academics? Like, what do you see as the most important uh, impacts of sports on kids learning both on and off the field? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, my dad tells me that um, when I was seven, eight years old, I, I vaguely remember this, uh, on rainy days, I would go to the library and check out books that had baseball statistics because I loved baseball. We played wiffle ball. We kept our stats on a Commodore 64. If you, <laughs> you guys are too young to probably. Oh remember. no, I'm not. <laughs> no, <laughs> I know all about it. <laughs> all right, you know how do you figure out slugging percentage? All of this stuff. Like I was, I was a sports fanatic, but I was also just curious about the numbers. And so I'd go to the library and check out these books on sports statistics and because I was curious. Um, So so for me, and then playing baseball, playing basketball, everything, just, you know, fascinated by the numbers. Um, When you grow up in a small town, uh, you know, the box scores from basketball games are in the next day's paper, you know, and um, it's kind of a big deal. Um, So I think that that thread sort of followed me through junior high, high school. And then once I started teaching, um, in San Bernardino, uh, in, in schools where, um, you know, most of the students, well, it was, it was a fantastic 
a teaching experience. And it was really an honor to be in places where, um, you know, I go back to that that speaker that I heard in, in college and his punchline was, go where you're needed. And I felt really appreciated in that context. Um, and, you know, you, you want to make connections to uh, people's lives. Uh, the, the sports scene at that school was a, a strong thread. We had assemblies. We had, and this is not just basketball. We had volleyball. We had you know, boys, girls, sports. There was, there was a lot of school spirit associated with that that you could kind of build from. Um, and then I was always the kind of teacher that was looking to make connections to the real world wherever I could. And sports, it just lends itself to that. Yeah, and I got to say, I, so the connection between sports and education for some, like Harrison, he'll he'll talk a little bit about how you know those two things were very real for him in a collegiate setting, and then you know as he was figuring out how to transfer into the NBA. But for you know, and, and I know you played collegiately as well, but for those of us who aren't professional athletes, the connection that you talked about, Kirk, with you know sports data and you know kind of like looking at the back of your baseball cards or looking in you know sports books or in the newspaper when you're a kid like that is the one of the ways in which a love for sports can be cultivated for many of us certainly was the case for me so i think that story resonates a ton personally and it also resonates with the story of the organization and the way that we're leveraging our products to get kids excited about learning in the classroom through this vehicle that has such a real world application like you were talking about. Absolutely. And I, I can re recall the same things looking up the, the bad boys stats. <laughs> what, how many rebounds did Rodman get today? <laughs> like my dad used to show me, you know, how, how to find it in the sports section and just, so yeah, that's then, a, then how many punches did Lambeer land? <laughs> They never put that in there. Oh, oh. <laughs> you had to catch the highlight. <laughs> they were the bad boys for a reason. I know, that's right. It has been a heated quarter. Technicals called on Lambeer, Paxson, Chuck Daly, and Brendan Sir. For me, learning off the court was a staple. That was, that was what you had to do basketball was the privilege that was something that you were able to do um, because you took care of priority number one so it definitely instilled uh, the discipline in me to always uh, be diligent about how I work to the hoop for Harrison Barnes kicks it out to Barnes Bagley shot clock down to five Barnes got to get busy here gets into the paint <laughs> off the rim and the soft feathery touch at work for Harrison Barnes Pulling it back. My last question for you. Um, so athletes can have a profound impact on a young child's life. From the perspective of an educator, how would you encourage professional athletes to leverage their platform in support of student learning in schools and out of school time environments? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think there's so many opportunities that athletes and other celebrities, uh, you know, ways they can leverage their status in positive ways. And I think there are lots of right answers to this question. I think if I could pick one thing, and, and this sort of relates to the, the work that I've 
done in math education that I'm still, you know, trying to contribute as a field is if, if we as a society, and if you had role models that could sort of emulate this, if we as a society could view mathematics more broadly than just uh, arithmetic and computation, but as a way of um, better understanding the world around you. You know, there's, there's, there are quantitative things that are really important to understand uh, to function better as a society. And some of those things are um, also really fun and interesting, and they're not about completing worksheets with uh, 37 division problems that you could do on your calculator. And I think if we had role models that said, you know what, um, pro- Problem solving, solving problems where the answer is not immediately obvious is actually an important skill because we live in a society and a world where the answers are not in the back of the book. You got to collaborate. You got to roll up your sleeves. You need to understand ideas. You need to, need to be able to communicate those ideas with people. And math class is actually a really great laboratory to work some of that stuff out. I hope that our education system continues to be more accessible and continues to give kids the skills and tools they need to go out and function in society. I know that when I left college, there were so many things that I learned in the real world uh, that really helped me. But I was fortunate enough to have people around that were able to guide me and give me give me great advice. Hopefully in the future, a lot of those lessons that I was able to learn outside of school can be taught at a much earlier age in school. You know, when you see a math classroom where kids are actively engaged in understanding and sense-making, the, the teacher is facilitating this sort of lively environment where ideas are being batted around and um, arguments are being crafted. Like, I've seen those classrooms before, and unfortunately, that's not the message that gets out there about math class. I mean, math class is still considered a pretty, you know, boring place. Um, there was a recent survey... I think it was, I forget who did the survey, but um, like 47% of the middle schoolers surveyed said they'd rather take out the garbage than do their math homework. <laughs> or so <Dirty>. you're like, <laughs> okay, there's, that's not great. Um, and so I think if you had an athlete that, that said, hey, math is interesting and it's not just arithmetic, it's problem solving. Look at this interesting problem or look at this big batch of data that we're trying to make sense of as an organization, or maybe you're looking at it at halftime and you're talking about it with your coach. Th- these are the patterns. Like, and, and NBA Math Hoops has plenty of opportunities for looking for patterns, being actively engaged. Like, it's just, you know, life is short. I think it's too short to, to, to sort of sit in rows and just do what the teacher tells you to, memorize procedures for a test that you're gonna forget three weeks later. I'm not saying that procedures aren't important. They are, but like the, the, the focus is, I think, is flipped. And if you could have an athlete that says some of those things, um, I think that would be pretty powerful. Yeah, and that connection, like, so the, the, the data-rich environment that the NBA has built over the past several years, you know, really when 
players are on the court, obviously there's innate skill and there's kind of intuition and kind of experience that goes into the gameplay process. But data and the use of data strategically is such a huge part of the way that the game functions now. Getting players into specific positions on the court where they have the best chance to make a shot. You know, getting the ball into certain players' hands at certain times of the game. Uh, all of that strategy is undergirded by mathematics. And if we were to, and that's this is part of our organizational goal with the NBA Matthews program, but to be able to show that at the level of depth that truly exists currently in the field and is evolving in the field, I think speaks to the to the challenge and, and the possibility that you're talking about there. It is a huge opportunity and it's used across the organizations. You know, it's not only players who are leveraging this data, it's it's analysts within the team staffs, it's coaches, it's trainers. So um, well, it's on, a multi-dimensional on that, environment. On that point, Nick, uh, you know, there is a movement uh, in education reform right now, which is to st- more strongly emphasize statistics data analysis as a high school pathway, as opposed to everybody needs to take algebra one, algebra two trig and get to calculus. And then, boy, I'm done. And I never have to take another math class again, which is like, doesn't even make sense. But like statistics is a, is a viable pathway that is not only uh, potentially more interesting as a, as a, just a subject. I mean, if you, if you think back to like your trig days and memorizing all those theorems in the back of the book, and I mean, there's some good stuff there, but, you know, contrasted with a really interesting statistics curriculum that's, that's rooted in real world data that actually could lead to a job. Um, you know, that's, that's a thing. And if there, if there were folks at the NBA level that are, you know, steeped in statistics and, finding out that, you know, this really matters in terms of how our organizations function, um, that would be a strong message. If you've ever listened to Freakonomics uh, Radio, that podcast, they had an interesting um, math education kind of one or two of their shows, and it was about this statistics pathway, and they interviewed some people from uh, economists and other folks that sort of talked about how, you know, maybe it's time for that we do a makeover of math. Definitely. And I think your, your point gets me thinking about all the ways that you could leverage data that exists currently that students would find interesting. And traditionally, you know, over the years, when you talk about a subject like financial literacy or statistics or whatever, you think about the stock market. But now you have sports, you have uh, Spotify, you have uh, social media. <laughs> and these are all platforms that kids are really connected to that generate rich data that could be used for exploratory purposes for knowledge around business development, etc. And I, I, I do agree, there's a huge opportunity to be able to look at the subject area and see it as something that is a primary pathway for students. When I think back to my own high school experience, like statistics was a class that, again, like, 2% of the graduating population took. It was a separate track, but it wasn't something that was popular. And I think now it like sits at the center of a lot of job opportunities. I'm proud of everyone in the NBA and the WNBA for stepping up and continuing to use our voice, use our platform, not only to address the injustices that are going on in society, but also to address our young people, 
to let them know that they're seen, that we were right in their shoes not too long ago, and that whatever they want to do, uh, those avenues can be open to them and they shouldn't be afraid to pursue any dream that they have and want. There's no doubt in my mind that the NBA and the WNBA are going to continue to put effort into really just empowering those kids, giving them opportunities, mentoring them, uh, setting good examples. I mean, there's so many different men and women who are doing such a great job of that already that I can only I can only imagine that trend is going to continue. It's worth pausing to examine some of the work that Harrison is talking about here and to highlight some of his own community contributions. Both the NBA and WNBA have been particularly active in centering social issues within the public spotlight, and players from both leagues have helped forge a modern model for celebrity and athlete activism. Athlete activism and community leadership has played a leading role in our society for decades, and recent attention has been focused on players' contributions to the racial justice movement. In 2014, several NBA players, including the entire Lakers team, wore shirts in memory of Eric Gardner for a pregame warm-up. In 2016, WNBA players on the Indiana Fever, New York Liberty, and Phoenix Mercury began a coordinated campaign in response to the deaths of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. A full two months before Colin Kaepernick first took a knee during the national anthem at an NFL preseason game. Since then, players in both the NBA and WNBA have made significant social contributions, including notable examples like Maya Moore, the Minnesota Lynx star who left the WNBA in 2019 to work full-time on criminal justice reform, and leveraged her platform to successfully free a wrongfully convicted man from prison. The leagues made racial justice a central theme of their 2020 seasons in the bubble, with players speaking out after the killing of George Floyd. Leading into the season, the WNBA and the WNBPA launched the Social Justice Council, a collaborative effort to advance social justice in conversations around race, voting rights, LGBTQ advocacy, and gun control, among other issues. Five total WNBA players opted not to play the 2020 season in the bubble, choosing instead to continue their work within the racial justice movement. Both the leagues and their players have doubled down on commitments to social and community causes during the ongoing 2021 seasons, including visible messaging in support of Black Lives Matter and the Say Her Name campaign, which was created following the death of Breonna Taylor to raise awareness for black female victims of police brutality and anti-black violence. Most recently, the NBA and NBPA dedicated NBA All-Star 2021 to elevating HBCUs and COVID-19 response equity. Within the NBA, Harrison Barnes is known for his commitment to community. He made donations to a different nonprofit organization for every game he played in the NBA bubble last season, using the events to highlight their missions across his social media. This included support for the Atatiana Project, which covered funeral costs for Atatiana Jefferson, a 28-year-old black woman fatally shot by a police officer in her home in Fort Worth, Texas. Harrison has given heavily in support of food security in the communities of Dallas and Sacramento during the pandemic, and was one of five players honored with the 2020 NBA Cares Community Assist Award. Harrison has, along with his wife Brittany, devoted particular attention to education-related community work, encouraging students' engagement in science, technology, engineering, and math. The biggest thing that my wife and I try to do is always give to the community what the needs are. It's a lot of times it's easy to sit back and say, well, I think 
you know, Sacramento needs this, or I think Chapel Hill needs this, or Ames, Iowa needs this. But the biggest thing that I try to do is always connect with people in the community who are doing good work, see how can I assist them, how can I amplify their message, how can I amplify their organization to bring more awareness to all the work that they're doing. I really try to undergird the people that are there doing that work because there's so many organizations, so many people that have put in so much time that it's huge to be able to really go and support them. I want to just take you down two more paths before we close out. So one is around rigor in the community space. Um, Professional sports organizations run a lot of community programs. Oftentimes they're one-off, they're, you know, lightweight, they're more about providing access to materials and things like that. And I agree that they all have purpose. Um, But there has been an aspiration in the field, in the sports and STEM, uh, sports and education, sports and community field to dig deeper, have more rigor behind experiences uh, that that teams and organizations are running. Um, And I feel like after years of kind of like being one of the few groups that are focused on, you know, let's do this work and evaluate it too, or make sure that we're, we're kind of holding ourselves to a certain baseline standard. There are other folks filling that space. Um, do you have any advice for the sector, this kind of like sports and community sector on the importance of rigor and analysis and evaluation as it relates to the programs that are being developed? Yeah, I think um, you're, you're absolutely right. Like I applaud organizations that uh, donate time and resources to their communities. I, I just think that's a really important uh, aspect of corporate citizenship. It's surprising to me, though, that being kind of, maybe it's not surprising, but um, as someone who's been uh, working very uh, in intensively, I would say, over the last 15 years in research and evaluation, there there are lots of sort of um, easy things that organizations might do to sort of begin to evaluate their programs. If you think of it as a continuum of um, just starting off with our whatever the the service or the, the offering is, was it implemented? How was it implemented? Who attended? How frequently? Like, there's things you can do as you're rolling it out to collect data on implementation. You don't even need to hire an independent evaluator to do that. Um, That's sort of on, you know, one side. You you can study implementation. You can try to understand whether and how certain models work better than others. Um, what, What are the kinds of things that draw certain kinds of participants in? That's sort of sort of a program improvement kind of approach, and then once you've got an implementation model that feels feasible, viable, then you can um, enlist a third-party evaluator, or maybe as an organization, you have somebody internally that could donate their time uh, to do some independent analysis of outcomes, and you know, lots of different kinds of outcomes could be signals that this is working. It could be educator coach outcomes, their beliefs, their dispositions toward uh, whatever the intervention is. Maybe you want to see that you want want to see those things shift. Obviously, it's great if you can have an academic outcome, one that you think is um, rigorous and aligned and important, but there are also student attitudes and beliefs and sort of these intermediate outcomes that are 
probably related to the ultimate outcome of, you know, improving students' opportunities in school, let's say. So I do think there's a lot of things that can happen if folks just slow down before they roll it out and maybe meet for an hour with an evaluator that says, okay, as you're rolling these things out, make sure to collect the attendance sheets, make sure to track people, be able to say something about how it was rolled out as opposed to, I think they liked it. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome context and great inspiration for folks in the field. So last thing, you know, the education landscape has been shifting a lot uh, over the last year, but also pre-pandemic and, you know, whether it's changes with access to technology or use of technology in and outside the classroom, um, you know, the focus on social emotional development, there are a number of trends that have continued to gain steam. Can you just share your perspective on where is the sector headed from an innovation standpoint? What are the, you know, top one or two to three opportunities that exist for organizations, educators, and the field at large to continue evolving the learning experience for students in the classroom? Yeah, I really think that uh, the SEL uh, sector or the SEL outcomes are, I think, here to stay for a while. And, you know, to be fair, education reform has sort of a pendulum kind of thing where, you know, you look over the past many decades and there are there are shifts, there are a move towards standards and rigorous assessment, and then No Child Left Behind comes along and does a lot of great things And that you're collecting data on students who were maybe ignored in the past, and yet some argue that those assessments, you know, as standards aligned to the more rigorous standards that was, that was sort of the goal of the late 90s. And then there's a sh- shift back to the Common Core which was a step in the right direction in terms of a, a more balanced definition of rigor and college and career readiness. And then th- it was politicized in, in some unfortunate ways and we're sort of back to states having a lot more autonomy. I think it's, it's, it's like a, a given that there will be political shifts that happen. However, you know, given the, the, the back and forth, I do think programs that... Um, do attend to, you know, the whole student, the whole child that really do a good job of um, moving beyond procedural rote-based learning into things like problem-solving communication. There is some overlap between the kinds of 21st century critical thinking, communication, problem-solving skills that reformers have been advocating for decades. And I think that given the state of the economy and that there really um, there are not the kinds of jobs that there used to be that were more um, you know rote sort of jobs if you will and I think I think that um, because that's here to stay that some of these educational reforms that can show that students do really become better better problem solvers they actually can do a three or four month project, pre- pre- present it to their peers, and that's sort of their assessment, you know, some of the innovative project-based learning models and schools that are out there. So I, I think that's going to be with us um, for quite some time. And I mean, I guess you could argue that um, if the education system is developing um, students who are able to um, ask good questions and solve uh, at least come up with solutions to problems that don't have easy answers. Um, 
pandemic year noted. You know, think you think of all of the uncertainty around the pandemic. Like those are the kinds of people that are going to drive the future of um, this society. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of that that's probably um, uh, idealistic. Like there, it, it's hard to create schools and classrooms where that kind of culture is uh, steady throughout and sustained. But it can happen. And even though it's hard, I think, I think, you know, those are the kinds of learning environments that we need to keep promoting. The Learn Fresh podcast is produced by our very own Nick Monzi and Sumner Becker, with additional production assistance from Caitlin Woodward. Sumner Becker also does our engineering, editing, and music. If you'd like to learn more about Learn Fresh, visit us at learnfresh.org or on social media where our handles are at learn underscore fresh and at NBA Matthews. Or you can send us an email at podcast at learnfresh.org. We love emails. And if you like what you heard today, give the podcast a rating and a review. Five stars only, though. <laughs> the Learn Fresh podcast is part of the Side Audio Network an audio community founded by Jeremiah Ote and Naranjan Kumar. Shout out to Jeremiah of the Learn Fresh family. <laughs> the Side Audio Network hosts podcasts that aim to transfer trust between people and communities through storytelling and conversation. 